Yeah. What are we doing? Like a podcast in the basement now? Living with mom? (laughs) (laughs) Joe lives in Kachi's house now. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 39 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Rubelke. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Katia Eames. Hello. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. John Papa. Hey, there. Ward Bell. Hello, there. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Scott Moss. What's up, y'all? I'm so relieved to have somebody on the show whose name I can pronounce. <laughs> Do you want to introduce hey, yourself real quick? What about us? You pronounce our names? I had to practice with your names. It's actually pronounced Scoat. Scoat. <laughs> Scoat Moose. There's quite the dichotomy between Lucas's hay and Scott's hay. Quite <laughs> the contrast there. Don't judge. Anyway, you want to give us a, an introduction? Let us know who you are. Yeah, I'm a senior front end engineer at Udacity over in Mountain View, California, with Lucas, actually, although he lives in Austin, Arizona. So I'm the senior engineer there. Uh, before doing that, I was an instructor and engineer at Hack Reactor, which is a nice coding school in San Francisco where they focus on like full-stack JavaScript stuff. And before that, I was in the Navy where I did all types of stuff, not programming-related. So besides doing all that, um, my spare time, I'm running anglerclass.com, which is like angular training workshops and corporate training, and maybe we'll get into consultancy. Also do a lot of volunteering, a lot of meetups, conferences, and uh, other uh, miscellaneous workshops. I'm also doing instruction on Egghead and Frontend Masters, uh, and I'm in the middle of writing a book. So not busy at all, right? Not busy at all. (laughs) And and by the way, thank you for your service. Thank you. (laughs) Scott, could you take just a few minutes and just kind of tell us about how you got into programming and kind of where you came from and to how you got to this point. I think it's just such a phenomenal story. And anybody who's not familiar with it, I think we'd be doing them a disservice by not giving them the opportunity to hear this story. Yeah, no problem, for sure. So how I got into programming. So I was in the Navy. I had a five-year contract and I was finishing up the last year, and I was informed that I was going to be medically discharged. So I made a conscious decision that like, once I get out, I wanted to do something that I really liked, something that I was talented at. I was talented at basketball, so I was like, well, I can go overseas and play basketball with my sister. But I really liked the idea of programming and software and technology, although I didn't really know much about it. So I chose that. Literally a week after I got out, me and my younger brother, we were in San Diego at the time. We packed all our stuff, put it in my car, and we drove up to San Francisco. No money nowhere to live. And we lived in my car and we would wake up every morning with just our computers and go to like cafe, Starbucks and stuff and just like get on websites and teach ourselves to program. And we did that for a few weeks and we loved it. It was like the best thing for us. I wasn't happier. I had nothing to complain about. I don't think I showered for like a month during that time, but it was just awesome. Just getting on the computer and like the people that I met at the cafes and like being in in that environment of Silicon Valley and everybody's like always doing stuff. It was really amazing. So I did that and I I got good enough to actually get into Hacker Actor. After completing the program as a student, I got hired on to be like an intern. They call it like a hackers in residence where I like worked on interviewing every single applicant that that came through Hacker Actor. So I learned a lot of practice when interviewing people. After I did that for three months, they hired me on as an engineer and an instructor. So I was in charge of building some of the curriculum and then delivering it and also working on some engineering stuff. So my background is kind of crazy. It's definitely not traditional. I never went to college. I barely graduated high school. And growing up, I lived in a hotel room with me and seven brothers and sisters for a long time. It was, it was pretty rough. 
But I think that kind of led me to where I am now, where I made the conscious decision that I didn't want to live like that anymore. And I was actually going to do something that I enjoy. Wow, that's awesome and inspiring. I'm misty. I've just got tears in my eyes right now. But <laughs> How long have you been working with Lucas? I've been working with Lucas in like two or three months now, right, Lucas? Yep. Yeah, so I met Lucas when uh, I actually came on board Udacity. And I was like, yeah, we got this other guy. He's in Arizona. And I was like, oh, okay, who's this guy? And I was like, oh, it's that guy. I know him. I was like, that guy. So <laughs> like, <laughs> I know him. Immediately, I felt just so proud to be where I was because I get to work with somebody so awesome. So it was just, uh, it was just love at first sight. Me and Lucas, and yep. we just, we just clicked. <laughs> So we're like the Miami Vice of, of programming, by the way. <laughs> I was going to say, I would think that after working with Lucas, it would make seven people in a hotel room seem not so bad. <laughs> well, and I don't shower either so, for like a month. Ward and John are like the odd couple. And then Scott and I are like Miami Vice. Miami so. Vice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So should I derail us back to ES6 yeah, now? Sorry. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's get back on track there. Take it away, Chuck. When it comes to Angular and ES6, before I actually like got involved and like actually pairing these two technologies together, there's just like some things that you actually don't think about before you actually start developing with these things. So some of the concerns that actually came up when I actually started using these technologies were like, I think the biggest thing for me was there is this really nice community. We have all these great style guides out there. John Papa's got a great style guide. But then when you mix that into like using something like ES6 modules, things can get crazy. I mean, really crazy. It took me maybe a week to really find a good pattern that worked. So it kind of gets crazy there. And then you start thinking about when it comes to testing, you're like, well, I now have this class syntax where maybe I can test my JavaScript separately from Angular now, but have Angular still consume my classes for controllers or directives and stuff like that. It opens up a lot more opportunities for things. For instance, you can start subclassing your directives and stuff, which I don't think a lot of people have done before. You never think about that stuff until you start getting it uh, involved. But there's so many ways to do one thing now because of all these new features that it can get kind of crazy. Can I pounce on that subclassing directives and stuff for a minute? I mean, I think everybody who has a computer science background, at least, is familiar with the idea of classical inheritance. But they all work a little bit differently. You know, Java's works a little bit differently from Ruby's, which works a little bit differently from C Sharp. So when you subclass a directive in JavaScript or in Angular, what exactly do you get or don't get? I, I mean, is it just copying the prototype over like we're used to or is it something else? Good question. It's a little different when you're talking about directives. So like if we think about a directive, if you're doing where like you're making a, a directive where you're actually returning a DDO or a directive definition object, then you could think, wait, if this is always going to be an object, then you know, I can have this be like an instantiable or renewable function, right? So if you think about it like that, then now what you can do is, and, and especially if you're going down the component approach of Angular where everything is a component, this totally makes sense. Whereas now you can have these container components, which are just like these newable functions. For instance, let's say you have a tab component and it has many tabs inside of it and they are also components. Now you can have this tab component, which is a newable function, and then you can set its template, you can set its controller, you can set its scope, all inside of that stuff. And then when you make a new tab instance, you can just make a new constructor that just inherits some of those defaults. Maybe it'll inherit the controller, so it sets up that relationship. Maybe it might inherit some of the same API and stuff like that. So then now all you have to do is when you want to make your new directive, you just say, I just want to make a new tab child or whatever. And it's a lot easier than having to redefine an entire directive definition object again and then now you can actually test that directives definition without bringing angular in you can just like grab that function and test it and inspect its properties and see what it is the interesting thing about that i think is the angular team for a long time has been of the opinion that everything should not actually be angular and i remember at the first ngconf i believe it was igor actually said hey if you're going to build a component actually just do it in javascript you know or some kind of ui component do it in javascript and then wrap it in angular and so I think that's one of the reasons why I really like Angular as a whole and their mindset of everything should not be Angular, but use Angular where it's appropriate, but then just <coughs> use JavaScript or the DOM or these different, you know, kind of native things that come with the browser where appropriate and if possible. And so now I think where things are going with, you know, Angular 2 and ES6 is it makes it a lot easier to kind of separate that out, which creates some really incredible opportunities in terms of isomorphic JavaScript and, and different things like that. Yeah, I totally agree. That definitely makes some more sense for me, at least. It just shows the power of Angular. It's like, yeah, you know, you can create your application outside of our context and, and architecture and completely bring it in and test it separately. It's just really smooth. 
We keep hearing about using TypeScript after ng-conf, using TypeScript yeah. on top of ES6 on for Angular 2. Is the story different for Angular 1? I've been asked that a lot, and I've actually asked myself that question a lot, too. So the thing about TypeScript, so right now, TypeScript doesn't have or some of the important features that ES6 has, for instance, like the module loading. I know in 1.5 in TypeScript, they're going to introduce that, and it's going to be awesome. But it does have the type checking, which is great. So what I did, I decided to just use ES6 because, first of all, it's it's going to be native in, in most browsers. They're done building features on it. It's here. They're just implementing it now. So I decided to go with that. And also, I, I do a lot of node development, and I like the fact that I'm actually using the same on both sides. So if I'm building some full-stack application, I'm using ES6 on the, on the back with I.O. Or, or Node, and then on the front, I'm using ES6 with Angular. To me, it just brings a little more consistency. But you wouldn't be wrong if you wanted to use TypeScript with Angular 1.x right now, but you wouldn't get all the features that Angular 2 and TypeScript 1.5 would have. So I think one of the things that's interesting about using ES6 today is the fact that unless you are doing a subset of ES6 and you're targeting a very specific browser, then you really have to transpile. Yeah, you have to. So then the problem becomes, all right, I want to transpile. Obviously, I don't want to transpile in the browser because I don't want to put that extra load on the browser. Yeah. You certainly can. You can transpile in the browser, but it's just extra work and load that you really don't need. So people right. are transpiling on the server side. Well, where does that ever end? When will we <laughs> reach a critical mass where people will be like, you know, we can certainly be in a situation where the browsers support the vast majority of ES6, but we're still all transpiling 100% of our code into ES5 on the, you know, at compile time. Right. At build time. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And I don't know if that'll ever be the case because if you look at some of the transpilers out there, the two most popular, like Tracer and Babel, Tracer has a runtime that you have to use in order to do this stuff. Babel actually doesn't have a runtime. They have a whole bunch of optional polyfills instead. But then if you look at all those experimental features like ES7, maybe you want to use object.observe or you want to use the array stuff that that's going on, the array comprehension. When you think about that stuff, it's like, well, even if ES6 was native in most browsers, like you said, we're still going to be transpiling everything because we're always going to be using something that's not available, or at least I know I am. I'm just right. so in love with array comprehension after using CoverScript for, for so long. I would never not want to use that. So I don't know if it'll ever get to that case. So that just means that the transpilers are just going to have to get better, and they are. So you know, Babel changed their name from 6 to 5 because they realized that this was not just going to be a transpiler from ES6 to ES5, but something completely more. Uh, you know, and for that, a lot of people who use React use Babel because Tracer isn't compatible with ES6 and React, but Babel is because they're making the push to make sure that they can use their tooling on a, a wide range of technologies. So I think the transpilers are just going to have to get better because I don't think they're going to go anywhere. Well, it, it might be worth just taking a moment, too, to talk about for people who haven't heard some of these terms. You know, there was 6 to 5, which came Babel, and the differences between Babel and Tracer and TypeScript. And, you know, so Scott, do you want to kind of go down why you use one use and kind of what these basic differences are? Yeah, for sure. So when it comes down to like actually writing ES6 code, and like, and like we said, you're probably going to be using a transpiler. And a transpiler is just a, a tool that converts your ES6 code down to something that can be readable in an environment like a browser down to ES5. So the main two ones are Tracer and Babel. Tracer is built by Google. It uses a, a runtime that where it like actually compiles your ES6 down to ES5 in the browser. Babel is open source built by some other third party and they do the same thing, but they do it completely different. So instead of using a runtime that's in a browser, they use optional polyfills. And the output of the code is actually more readable. It's more closer to what a human would write, whereas like the output of Tracer definitely looks like a machine wrote it. I don't think you could go and look at Tracer's compiled code and like understand what's going on. Uh, so yeah, it actually I almost looks think... like something that Dr. Evil wrote. <laughs> yeah, man, I'll tell you, every time I watch, every time I run Tracer and I see the output, I look at it and go, is it really doing that or is this just a joke? <laughs> it's that awful. It's just purely awful to look I at. Feel like, I feel like I'm looking at ASM. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, man, it's, it's so bad. And then you look at like the output of Babel or the output of TypeScript, and you're like, that's so clean. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I would have done, or that's, that's probably what I wanted to do. Either way, yeah. that's awesome. If I had talent, that's how <laughs> yeah. I would write JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't code ES6, but when I do, I use yeah. TypeScript. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we so. should mention that uh, TypeScript is also a transpiler. 
Yes, TypeScript and, is also a transpiler. Right. And so uh, what it does is really it combines both uh, the tooling and the transpiler functions. So that's why, you know, it can do things like give you IntelliSense support and refactoring and all that all kind of in one package. And of course, if it was complete ES6, which 1.5 will be, that combination would seem to be pretty compelling to me versus Babel. Have you played with 1.5 and can you say whether that promise is there or not? I haven't played with 1.5. That's on my to-do list for the next two weeks. I don't know where to get 1.5. I can't find it. Their yeah, site only gives you, like I've looked around the site, unless I'm missing something, it only gives you the current version 1.4. Hmm. Can't no, get we'll, we'll, we'll get you the link. We'll put the link. Give in me the, the link. Okay, I, yeah. wanna, I want it. I, am I the only person that feels like TypeScript was something only for .NET developers until Angular two? <laughs> now, uh, now it's something that maybe uh, somebody that doesn't use .NET would consider using. So I think that's a really interesting, and we should do a show on TypeScript as we, we were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. We should know anybody who so. knows TypeScript. And let's so, get somebody from the TypeScript team, and I'll ask them that question yeah. very nicely. Yeah, I, I never heard of TypeScript until I heard of Angular. So so full disclosure on this, I have a TypeScript course with Dan Wallin that we put out a couple of years ago on Pluralsight. But TypeScript, it's not intended for that, right? So that's kind of the, the elephant in the room, is that TypeScript was created not just to be for .NET developers. But I think you're absolutely correct. Until the Angular team decided this is where they're going to head, and AtScript is going away and becoming part of it and all that, I don't think a lot of the community really gave it a serious look. And I, you know, the stats that I've seen over the last month since NGConf there are kind of supporting that so far in the early on. But it wasn't created for .NET people to be able to do JavaScript. It was created for, as Ward mentioned, not just getting to ES6 faster, but also the tooling experience. And we all know like the Angular team is really, really excited about having different tooling companies like WebStorm and JetBrains and Visual Studio and Brackets and all these others being able to light up all these other features now that they can do all this type checking and other kinds of compilation. Right. Yeah, that stuff's pretty amazing. When I actually started getting to like, you know, using WebStorm and stuff with JavaScript, I was like, wow, okay, this is awesome. Because I've done Android development with Java. Coming over to the web, I was like, ah, man, I wish I just had, I wish I had the right unit test to see what type this was. This is ridiculous. So like, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, but I think you're spot on, both of you, that did most people even really give TypeScript a real shake until ngconf? I'm not sure they did. It's like anything Microsoft did, we're against it. They just couldn't believe Microsoft <laughs> could produce anything that anybody would want to use. Right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Microsoft, that, that probably hurt their accreditation, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it, and it would be interesting to see if that worm has turned because you know, all the other companies they fled to haven't exactly been great, you know, the great friends of the developer that everybody was claiming they were. And, yeah. But I think uh, we're also going to see others try to at least look at what TypeScript is doing and make up for it. You know, like... TypeScript's the only thing that's besides Tracer. You know, Tracer supports the annotations that Angular 2 has. TypeScript's 1.5 is. Babel stated supposedly that they're going to. Yeah, they just released update to do it. Okay. So they're going so, to honor, honor types because, by the way, that type notation stuff is not part of ES6. Right. Right? I mean, yeah, there's yeah, no, it's not, there's it's no not type ES6. annotation in ES6. That's yeah, a, it's, it's not ES6. Yeah, that's a TypeScript thing. So I'm interested to see if the community starts to see some value in types and TypeScript, and then we see other tools that start to come out and compete with them and say, hey, we're going to do some of that too, you know, uh, the new Babel. I think we will. I, 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 so. I definitely think so. Yeah. I mean, so right now I'm doing some corporate training and a lot of companies are requesting like, oh, you know, they're asking me, should we be doing this with ES6 or TypeScript and, and all this stuff? Like they're, they're aware of this stuff and like they're very conscious of it, which to me is impressive because I wouldn't expect them to be. So I think it is. And one of the things that's always bothered me, speaking specifically of types, is, and granted, when I went to JavaScript, I came from a typed language. I came from .NET, in fact. And I was doing JavaScript, and CoffeeScript started to get popular, and I looked at it, and I thought, no, I just want to do pure JavaScript. <laughs> and even TypeScript came around, and I, was, I thought it was kind of cool, but it just didn't really work out for anything that I was doing. But I do dislike the widespread, I don't know if it's belief or just attitude, that if I'm a front-end guy and I do JavaScript, that types aren't valuable. Mm. And I hope that through Angular, through TypeScript, that we see a change in that behavior. It's not like you have to have types to build solid products, but types do have value. And I hope they that do. more people start to see that. 
That's a yeah, key. It's, it's a, there's value there. It's not, it's not necessary. It's not like if you don't have them, you're going to fall apart. But there is right. definite value to knowing the types of what you're doing, especially for unit testing. And uh, even testing before that, just looking at your code in the editor and knowing, oh, wait a minute, that's a number. I just passed an object. Right. And I think it's just like ES6. I think there's so many people that don't use ES6 because they just don't understand that there's value there. Yeah, exactly. They look at some of the new features like BAP and weak maps and stuff, and they're like, well, what's the point? I already have an object. Uh, they don't really understand the, the value there, but maybe they will. Hopefully they will. So let's say, Scott, if I'm going to go down the road and use ES6 with Angular, and kind of like you've been kind of plowing this whole thing. If we go down that road and I'm new to this and I want to get started in it, we keep talking about transpilers, and that's all cool. We're not suggesting, I hope, that we're just going to right-click all of our files one by one and use no. a transpiler. <laughs> no. uh, so <laughs> how do you suggest people actually use a transpiler in a real application? That's a great point. So you're pretty much going to have to adopt some type of build system, either that you make yourself or a combination of some build tools or maybe something prepackaged. So I would, I would recommend for some of the most popular ones out there. So you have Webpack, which is really, really awesome. The way I look at Webpack, it's like something that is awesome for the current generation. To me, it doesn't seem like it's next generation, mainly because it doesn't follow the module loading spec like some other tools that we're going to talk about does, but it's like really, really great when you compare it to something like Gulp. So as far as transpiling and, and maybe even like building our, our CSS, it's super awesome. So Webpack is one and there's plugins for it. Like you can use Tracer or Babel with Webpack. Super easy to get started. If you're a little more, you want a little more manual customization and, and do a little, little other processing and other build steps, you can just go get straight into using Gulp. There's also a plugin with Tracer and Babel there for Gulp and you can just build your own process there. But my favorite one that I like to use and I think is just crossing the line of what the future of ES6 is going to be. So it might not have as many features as Webpack does because it's stepping into a new generation. I would say it's going to be JSPM. And that's definitely my favorite tooling. It actually uses System.js to actually perform any type of universal module definition. And you can require any module that you want. So you can go to GitHub or NPM, and it's going to load that up as any module format and load it up as ES6. So you can import it in any file. And it does the transpiling of your code as well. So that's my favorite tool. I recommend that. It uses Babel and Tracer. But like I said, it doesn't have as many features as Webpack at this time. But they're totally working on it. And I'm actually working on some plugins for it, too. For those of us who are newer, such as I, what is System.js? Good question. So System.js is just a universal module loader. It uses module loading polyfill. So actually, the system object is something that's part of ES6, but the System.js library is just a polyfill for it. And really, it's just a way to load modules, whether it's going to be common JS modules like a node or require JS modules, AMD, or maybe even ES6 modules. It doesn't matter how that module is defined. System.js will be able to load it up and give you access to it inside of your code. So it's just a, a universal way of loading these different modules because we've diversified the way we've made modules uh, over the last couple of years. And that's going to be stock in ES6. So this is just a polyfill for it. So JSPM uses that to load up the modules for you. Awesome. Just to be clear, you mentioned Gulp and these package managers in the same breath. And I think we want to make a distinction there, right? Because yes. Gulp is, is not a package manager per se. It's a, it is it's not. A, it's a build system. And build systems and package managers are kind of different, right? That's true. So, yeah, so Gulp is de definitely not a package manager. It is truly a build system. Its job is to handle file. It pretty much just does file manipulation for you and, and tons of other stuff that you can get to. But it was designed to take files, operate on them, and spit them out. Definitely different than JSPM, which is actually combined with System.js, is actually a package manager. So its job is to like go and fetch packages for you from GitHub and Node. So you can actually use them together. right? You can use Gulp and JSPM, and I do all the time. But when it comes to like actually taking care of all things related to my ES6, I usually just defer to JSPM. And have go do other things like, you know, change log and, and all other types of stuff non-related to ES6. Although you can do it with Gulp too, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's helpful. Thank you. And the thing I really do like about JSPM is that it uses, or actually I think System.js does this. So System.js uses, if you guys ever use Require.js or AMD, like it, you can have like these shims where you define what this module's def, uh, what this module's dependencies are. So System.js uses that. So you can really go to any dependency you want on NPM or GitHub and you can like, you know what? I want to be able to import that. And it's really sweet. For instance, the first time I used JSPM, I was building an Angular application and I'm all about material design. So the first thing I wanted to do was use Angular Material. 
So if you ever use Angular Material, you know that it has a couple dependencies. It has its own JavaScript that it's its own module. It also requires ng aria, ng animate, and it has its own CSS file. So there's four different dependencies there. JSPM, when you download Angular Material with JSPM, not only will it fetch all those dependencies for you, which it should, but when you import ng or Angular Material, it's going to go ahead and import all those dependencies, including the CSS, and actually add that CSS into your HTML for you. So you don't have to. So you don't have to add the link tag or anything like that. It's going to grab the CSS, stick it in the DOM for you, and it's going to make sure you have everything you need. And then now all you have to do is just import Angular Material from Angular Material, and everything's good to go and all wired up. So that right there just blew my mind when I saw that. So one thing that occurs to me with this is that if you're writing code in ES6, do you just write your tests in ES6 too? Wow, yeah. So I actually thought about this for like two days. I was like... If I'm going to go all in on ES6, then I'm going to do everything in ES6. And luckily, depending on what build system you use, there are tons of ways that you can use ES6 with your tests. So there really isn't an excuse on why you shouldn't, other than the fact that you just don't want to do it, which is fine because there's this overhead in, in setting up these plugins and stuff. But me personally, I do write my tests in ES6. And depending on what build system, like JSPM has, let's say we're going to write some unit tests. JSPM has Karma plugins. Webpack has Karma plugins for the ES6. So there's definitely ways for you to use ES6 in your tests. And in my opinion, you should. You should just make everything uniform. If you're using ES6 to write your code, you should use ES6 to test it. I don't understand what the problem is. In other words, what am I missing? What was going to make it hard for me to write my tests in ES6? No, I, I just... So what, there are a couple of things that kind of occurred to me. One was that if there's an issue in your build process, then you know running the test in ES6, if it's just in, run through an interpreter, may or may not catch those issues. Other than that, you know, I just didn't know if the tooling was up to date such that it, you know, played nicely with ES6. Yeah, most of the tooling is up to date. When you, if you stick to like a, a, a popular build tool, build process like Webpacker or JSPM, the tooling's up to date there. Now, if you want to go down like a more custom path, you're going to be in charge of making sure you do that. So like, I think a catch all way of making sure you can run your tests that are written in ES6 is just compile it first and run the test there. Run the test against the ES5 and mm-hmm. see what happens. So that's that's definitely the catch-all, especially if you're like going down the Gulp route where you do it yourself in Gulp. Then yeah, just, just compile it yourself and test the ES5. How's the debugging experience, Scott? Uh, one of the terrors of going through a transpiler is you're sitting there maybe debugging in the browser and you see something that you want to go back in the style of the thing you wrote. You want to see it in ES6. You don't want to see it in ES5, and you want to be able to get back and forth. Does that work out in practice for you with and with all browsers, or, or with what browsers do you use? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's two ways. So it's pretty much if you want source maps or not. So when you're doing transpiling, especially with Babel, you're going to get some nice source maps. Or if you're using like Gulp, there's like Gulp plugins for their source maps, and the Gulp Babel plugin supports that. But if you don't use source maps, you'll be looking at the code that Babel spits out or Tracer spits out. And Babel's not so bad, but like we said, Tracer is pretty bad. So like you're going to have a hard time doing that. But like I said, the source maps actually make it pretty easy. So I don't have too much problem on newer browsers debugging my code. And it's like you can look up right in the console, it'll show you the ES6 code uh, right there line for line. And it works pretty good. Like you won't be able to like actually like step through the execution of it and stuff because the browser's not reading that stuff. But you can still figure out what's going on. And, you know, the errors on this line, here it is. So that's pretty good. But testing it on the older browsers, I had I had it running on IE9 the other day. Just I forgot why I was doing it, but I was doing you, it. You love pain. <laughs> <laughs> I've had some pretty painful experiences, that's for sure. And this was definitely one of them. It was just a lot of work going on. Like there was some polyfills that I was missing, like for maps, uh, the IE9 does it like, and then figuring out how to work their dev tools. Like it was, it was pretty painful. If you're using the latest and greatest evergreen stuff, yes, you're going to be fine. But going backwards, I feel sorry for you. I just want to point out that there was a time, and I'm sure there's a couple of people on here that will remember this time when we were using IE7 and we had to do something in IE5 and be like, oh, it sucks to have to go back so far. Good thing we have IE7 for most of the stuff. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I think when I7 was out, I was maybe We don't want to hear. We don't want to <laughs> I was going to say he's going to make us all feel old. Yeah, keep it to yourself. You keep that dancing it in middle school. Just middle school homecoming. Yeah, well back yeah. when I was painting on cave walls. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about how old my daughter was when I7 was out. <laughs> so Scott, how has coding even Angular 1 in ES6 changed your style of building Angular 1 apps? 
Oh, that is such a good question. This is like probably one of the best reasons I use ES6 with Angular. So I've actually like John Papa, I follow your style of guy pretty to the T and like I really like the way of organizing the modules. Like everything just makes sense. And I actually taught that when I was teaching people Angular at Hack Record. So I taught them like, yeah, this is, this is how you do it. It just, it just makes sense when you, when you build things by modules. Actually bringing in ES6 specifically the support for ES6 modules and then like switching over to a component architecture, which is the recommended approach now because it makes the transition from Angular 1.x 2.0 a lot easier. Using ES6 modules is just perfect for this because now you literally can create an entire component that Angular is going to consume outside of Angular. You can create the controller. You can create, you know, the templates. You can create everything dealing with that module completely outside of Angular's context and just have Angular register this component. And for me, that's really, really awesome because really most of my code now is actually can be tested specifically away from Angular, which as we know, can be pretty difficult, especially for people learning Angular, like getting to actually write that test and all these mocks can be pretty crazy. So this makes it really, really beautiful. And it reinforces the point of like having modular code to where now you have people just working on separate modules and separate components that can be composed to make greater and bigger components. And then eventually you just have somewhere in your like your body tag, you'll just have like a element that just says app and then your entire app is inside of there. And every single element in there is just a component that was composed and written entirely outside of Angular. So that right there for me just makes a lot of sense. And like I could actually use some of those components in other projects. You know, I might just have a repo full of just random components where I can just make an app composed of these three components and make another app composed of these three components. And it's just really, really flexible. I'm not tied down to like Angular's context anymore. So the modularity really plays in pretty easily with ES5, ES6, obviously. But let's dive down a little bit because this is interesting where let's say you have a controller and you've written, you know, Angular 1.x and you're doing ES5. So now you have a controller where you're saying angular.module foo.controller scott controller and then you define it. Right. In the ES6 world, there's a couple of ways you can actually go about doing that. Have you tinkered with many of those? And then as a follow-up on that, do you do scope or do you do controller as? And how did that play into your decisions with ES6? So if you want to take advantage of the ES6 features, specifically, I would say the class feature, which is pretty awesome. I mean, it does what we already know how to do. It just put some sugar on top of it. So if you're going to be using that class in text, then you definitely have to go with the controller as you. Uh, I mean, you could do the scope, but then, you know, it isn't as nice and it's not the recommended approach and it makes transition over for Angular 2 a little harder. So I go with the controller as, and then what I typically do is like I have an entry file for my modules, my Angular modules, and then for instance, if I'm going to make that controller, say dot controller, I give it the name, and then the second argument is actually a completely different class that I created in a separate file that I'm importing with ES6. So I would have Scott controller will be in a separate JS file and it's just a class and all the properties are defined to that controller. So you can just, you know, do your setters and getters there, your methods there or your properties right there in that controller. And then I would just import it over into where it's actually going to be registered with Angular. So that's, that's one technique. I've actually seen people just go ahead and just like continue to inline their controller as they typically would do with ES5. But I've actually seen people use like arrow functions there. So be careful and like not get arrow function happy because you can use arrow functions and decide that you want to use arrow function for your controller because you're actually going to change the context of what this is. Uh, and right. it's right into issues. So I've actually seen people do that a lot and I've like helped people debug that. You got to be careful how you use that feature, but definitely taking advantage of the class feature there and having it in a separate file is powerful because again, now you can test that controller completely separately from the rest of your application. And then like maybe that controller might have some common stuff on it. Maybe you have five different views and they all have, I don't know, a, a title that's bound to their model. Now you can create a controller that has that and you can just subclass those controllers and you don't have to worry about that default there. So that's just another way to take advantage of those features. That's awesome. That's a good tip to what the lambdas. I mean, so you know, you're using those arrow functions and I love my arrow functions too. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, can, you can actually get in trouble sometimes with, with that because you're not aware of it because the whole point of the arrow functions in TypeScript started doing this and then in ES6 as well is you're not just getting this anonymous function with a shorter syntax, but you're also now getting the this context passed along yep. to your function. So that in some cases is what you want. In other cases, it's, it's not. So. Right. Yeah, but, it's definitely I mean, not what you want. So we can do it. We're just talking about ES6 with Angular 1.x and we're talking about ES5 with Angular 1.x, which you did. But you can also do ES6 or ES5 with Angular 2 as well. And I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen any examples yet of doing ES5 with Angular 2. Has anybody else? 
Oh, because it's not pretty. I've actually yeah. tried it. It's, it's not pretty. It is not pretty. There's too much to explain. Like, I actually did it. And I was trying to show somebody how Angular 2 worked, and I was doing ES5, and I realized that there was just way too much for me to explain, and most of it I didn't even know myself, right? Because Angular 2 is just, like, on the bleeding edge, and the way that I'm looking at so far at the tutorials and people making it has all been in, like, TypeScript and stuff. So, like, me looking at it in ES5, I was like, well, I, I don't think I actually understand this myself. Because I know TypeScript, like, it, it does this. But over here, I, I'm not too sure. It's just a lot of setup and a lot of bootstrap. And for me personally, it kind of ruins the experience of actually building with Angular 2. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to go to Angular 2, you, you, you kind of really want to go down to the ES6 level. But, yeah, I just thought it was worth pulling out there because there's actually four combinations that you can play with right now. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I wonder if that's going to put people in, like, some type of stasis where they're, like, confused in, like, what they should be doing. Like, uh, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? I like the fact that we have all these options, but I'm also worried that people aren't going to know what to do and, like, how to do it and what's the best way. It's actually one of the things that I've, I've had asked a lot in the style guide lately. I've had a lot of activity up in my GitHub of when am I going to move to Angular 2 uh, or when am I going to move to ES6. And what I'm actually planning on doing for that is just not going to bother with ES6 for Angular 1 for now, as far mm-hmm. as style guide goes, because it is a little different. Yeah. But actually just move right to an Angular 2 migration guide with ES6, because I think you agree with me based on what I'm hearing, is using Angular 2, you might as well go to ES6 or TypeScript. And yeah. with Angular 1, while it's helpful to do ES6, if you're going to go that route, why not jump in Angular 2 anyway? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I agree. Yeah, but it's a bit, for most people, it's pretty premature to be talking about using Angular 2. So yes. I would say the, the right answer here is ES5 with Angular 1 is okay, but ES6 with Angular 1 is better. And then Angular 2, it's ES6 or you know either with Tracer or with TypeScript. Honestly, I hope that Angular 2 is one of the things that really pushes people that aren't doing transpiling to start doing it just because I think it does a good job of showing that if a framework takes advantage of what is available in ES6, that it makes a lot of sense, and then there's so much more to be gained by it. So I hope it pushes the people as they start using Angular 2 for real, you know, in six months or whatever, that it pushes them to start transpiling and going to ES6. And we don't have very many people that say, I've got to stick with ES5, but I want to migrate to Angular 2. And I'm absolutely, absolutely, absolutely not going to go to ES6. I'm not going to transpile. I hope we get very few cases like that. Yeah, yeah, well, I hope I, so too. I have to wonder a little bit if, and, and I, I think this depends on what kind of build process you already have in place, but some people, they write their ES5 Angular stuff, they kind of cram it all in one file, and then they just serve that file. And so their build process is, I have it all in the same file. That's fine as long as you have 200 lines of code. (laughs) Right. What I'm aiming at is, so for those people, the barrier to entry to this is that they actually have to add a build process. I don't think that transpiling, if you already have a build process, is that bad because you just add another task to the list and, you know, install a new tool with NPM or Bower or something. But I'm really curious to see how many people really have a build process where this is a trivial addition versus you know, this being a barrier to upgrading eventually to Angular 2. Well, and yeah. the more that people do take that first step and finally put in a build process, then they'll start seeing that it's actually not as bad. You know, the first time, it takes a little bit of effort. Yeah. But after that, on subsequent projects, when you're just copying and pasting an existing build process, or you get really comfortable with Grunt or Gulp, or maybe it's WebStorm's automatic build, whatever mm-hmm. it is, you pretty quickly figure out, oh, this is actually isn't so bad. And then on new projects, it's not such a big yeah. deal for me anymore. Even if it's a small project, I still might... You know, there's plenty of people out there that will still use ES6 even if they're building a toy project with 20 lines of code because yeah, they love it so much. That's me. That's me. Everything that I build from outside of work is everything is ES6. Like, I just don't start a project without it. Are there good examples on the web? I know we kind of talked around this a little bit, but are there good examples on the web? of using ES6 with Angular? I think the most popular one that I've seen, which after using it so much, I don't really agree with some of the patterns they, they did, but it's actually pretty popular, and they were one of the first ones. It's GoCartless is a company, and they have their own ES6 style guide out there of how they actually built Angular with ES6. They have their entire repo out there that you can look at. I looked at it, and at the time when I first saw it, before I actually dove into ES6 and Angular, I liked it. But now that I'm using it, I don't really agree with some of the patterns, so so maybe I might put something out there. Maybe put some of my own opinions out there. The other thing I'm oh, wondering... Oh, Jesus, Scott, come on. <laughs> Give us one pattern you don't like and why you think yours is better. Okay, okay. so one pattern I don't like is how they 
don't really take advantage of the actual modules in ES6, but they really rely heavily on the modules in Angular. I like the way that since everything is like going to be modules, I, it kind of reminds me of Node almost. So like there should be like an entry file where you create a module, an Angular module, and then it just registers all the components or, or whatever that are created somewhere in ES6, maybe in the same directory or subdirectories as children. What they did was like they actually just abused the Angular module and they just kept registering everything on the same module. And I, I didn't really like that. Instead of like creating an, an entirely new module, an entirely isolated component, they weren't taking advantage of that. And they were like subclassing the Angular modules. Or I'm, I'm sorry, not subclassing, but like doing like sub-modules with the Angular modules, which is great in ES5, and I do that all the time. But I think we're using ES6. You should just be like, if you're going to do the sub-module type thing where you have like child modules that you know get registered on parent modules, you should do that in the ES6 land. You shouldn't do that in the Angular land. All my Angular modules now, are they're, all, they're almost entirely flat because the AS6 takes over the inheritance of the modules. Yeah, I want to ask one more question, and then I think we're probably going to get into picks. And I know, Katya, you've done some stuff with Khan Academy and some of the other learning systems out there, so I'd like your take on this. But how much of the material that new JavaScript developers are picking up is ES6, and how important is it that they pick it up early? Yeah, there's none. There's no material out there. None. And it's very important that they do. I, in my opinion, it's especially since feature development on ES6 is done, it is very important. I, I would actually, if I were in charge of teaching somebody JavaScript right now, I'd actually teach them in ES6. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Katya? I, I know that you've kind of gone through some of this training. and I agree. There's not really any out there, none at all, but it's really important to learn. I'm still learning it, so. Cool. Anything else we should cover on this before we get to picks? Other than there's really not a good reason why you shouldn't be using some type of ES6, whether it's ES6 or TypeScript. No, and you should. You should totally be using it. Like I totally <laughs> just do I it. totally feel like we're all John the Baptist out in the woods crying. <laughs> Nobody's listening. <laughs> there's a few people that come out and they're like, "Hey, good idea." And then everybody else is like, there's some crazy people out there saying he's S6. <laughs> they say that now, but like all, all the training that I do, every, all the training that I do now on is, is all about ES6. Well, even if it's nothing to do with Angular, it's just all ES6. And if somebody can figure out a reason why I shouldn't be doing that, like I totally want to know because I can't think of one. Yeah. Well, you know, the more I look into ES6 and the more that I play with it, it just gets a lot of the boilerplate out of your way. And yeah. then you can focus on what you're actually doing. Right which is the power there in some of these higher-level languages that transpiled JavaScript. Yeah. Yep, that's that's for sure. And, like, one thing I noticed, too, is, like, a lot of corporate companies, like you said, they have to invest in, like, a build system. And a lot of them, for instance, maybe they're using, like, a PHP backend. You know, God bless them. Or, like, you know, and they're using <laughs> Angular on the front end. <laughs> now they're like, oh, wait, maybe we have to use this thing called Node? It kind of, like, teaches them new things because they have to build this build system. They never ventured off in these technologies. Like, I actually was in a situation where somebody had a PHP backend and they were, like, using ES6 on the front end. It was with React, though. And I was like, yeah, you know, you probably got to invest in, like, some type of build system. And I was, they were just looking it up and, like, all they can figure out was, like, oh, everything's, like, on Node. You know, I'm just like, well, yeah, you just got to learn Node. They didn't think that Node was like even a thing. Like, they thought it was like kitty language. Like it was not even a thing to them. And like I brought all this research to them about Node and they were just amazed about it. I think it forces people to like go out and do things they would normally not do. Yeah, I, I have to confirm that. The aversion to Node is amazing out there right now. <laughs> yeah. If people haven't been in it, there's different reactions. Some are just worried about it. Some are, it's a lot to take in and others are just, uh, they have this disdain for whatever reasons. Right. Yep. For the record, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Ward, do you want to start us off with picks? Uh, sure. Mine will be where to get a look at the alpha for uh, TypeScript 1.5. I don't know when the radio, when yes. the show comes out, whether it'll be beta or whether it'll release it. They seemed so close to that. We'll have some show links for that. Sweet. Nice. All right, Lucas. What are your picks? My picks are, I have a book that I just recently read that I really love called The Effective Engineer by Edmund Lau, and it's just incredible. I burned through it in like two hours, and then I wrote him this raving fanboy email about how awesome it was, and it's just about how to be 
an effective engineer and, and choose high value activities and focus on those things. And you read was, that already? We just got that book. I <laughs> literally I started two hours later. I was like, my life has changed for the better. <laughs> wow. And then, okay. uh, my birthday was last week and my wife bought me a Cote and CL Isar uh, backpack, which is just absolutely gorgeous and I'm super stoked about it. And uh, so those are my two picks for the week. Nice. All right, Joe, what are your picks? So at NGConf, we had a StarCraft tournament, and we flew in a couple of professional StarCraft players to play a couple of games against each, a few games against each other that everybody got to watch. And then for fun, we had a couple of Joes play with the pros in a two-on-two, one pro, one Joe against each other. And we had this caster that we flew in named In Control, and the guy was so dang hilarious. <laughs> he casted this game, and he was kind of poking fun of these Joes and all the mistakes that they made. But it was funny as could be, and I, I'm so disappointed we didn't record it because it oh, was one of the funniest was, StarCraft games really I've good. ever seen. Wow! So I want to pick the caster in control just because the guy was a great caster and he was funny as can be. And um, as a StarCraft caster, he's a great caster. So that'll be my pick: is the StarCraft professional caster in control. All right, John, what are your picks? So I've got two picks here. Uh, one is my daughter, who we were talking about early before the show started. She just spoke in front of the city council here in Orlando about a new high school proposal that they're doing. And she actually made the news in the newspaper. She did a great job. And I'm just a proud father and I think it's great to see my 13-year-old daughter getting up and speaking in front of everybody. Awesome. Um, super yeah. awesome. And then uh, from the coding side of things, there is this conference called Angular U that's coming in June. Never, Never heard, heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and some of anybody us cool speaking there? there? Perhaps a few people. <laughs> I've uh, heard somebody, some names, but nobody cool. This guy named Scott Moss, I believe, is going <laughs> to be there. That guy's a poser. Is Scott going to talk at Angular U? That's great. I love Scott. I heard yeah. that guy doesn't shower for a month. No, I hear, and he sleeps in his car. And we should have him on the show, though. Yeah, I did hear that you have to shower to attend Angular U, though. Oh uh, no! Oh man, I can't <laughs> conduct. I assume it's, it's a dirty rumor. You can just wade out in the ocean and come back. Dirty <laughs> rumor. Uh, ha ha ha. I was talking to Dan Walleen, who's one of the organizers last night, and they've got some really, really awesome things lined up for this. And, you know, the Angular team's going to be there, and several of us will be there. I mean, there's Joe, and there's Scott, or Scout, uh, there's myself, and some others. But I think it's going to be really I exciting. I to be one of those others, John. Okay. Oh, Ward, Ward. Thank you. Okay. And, Thank you. As and matter Luke, fact, it's going to be there. <laughs> but just gonna be, promo. what's really cool is there's going to be some things besides just the regular talks there too so I think it's going to be really really exciting doing some really cool things that haven't been at conferences in a while so I'm pretty excited about uh, Angular U Ooh. nice Katya do you have some picks for us yeah my pick is the imitation game because that's one of the only movies that has actually made me cry oh wow Nice. I was I was sitting next to her. I can verify. She <laughs> what's what's that movie about? Uh, it's about Alan Turing. Oh, oh, I want to see that one. Uh, yeah, I want to see that one. Yeah, yeah I, I, mean, I cry every time I try and make something Turing complete. <laughs> <laughs> For people listening to this podcast, that's the kind of movie you should definitely watch and see the history. I've always complained about people that don't know the history is even the, as short as it is the history of our in- industry and the the giants whose shoulders we all stand upon yeah absolutely i should have a pick but i am drawing a blank so i am going to pass scott do you have some picks i sure do so my first pick is going to be treeline treeline.io it's this yc company now created by the guy who made sales js which is like some backend language, backend uh, framework for Node. It's like a drag and drop GUI that you can make a, uh, a backend with. And it's actually pretty awesome. I just tried out their beta the other day and I was pretty impressed because although I do a lot of work with Angular, I actually do way more work on the backend than I do with Angular. So I'm always interested in, in see what type of backend technologies there are. And like this one seems pretty legit. So it's pretty awesome. And my next pick is going to be Interstellar, the movie. So I don't know if you guys have ever seen that movie, but when it came out, they had it here in San Francisco, 7K, 40 millimeter IMAX. It was like the most. (laughs) It wasn't 3D. It wasn't 3D. That would have just like killed it. Like I would have been like, oh my God. I saw it twice in a week and it was like the best movie I've ever seen in my life, mainly because yes, it was entertaining, 
it really did change my life. I cried on that movie, by the way, twice. <laughs> uh, and I never, I never cry. Like I'm really not good at expressing my sensitive emotions, but I cried twice on that movie. And How did you cry in Scott? Murph. I, 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 yes, I was crying there. It was just heartbreaking, I guess, because I'm a, I'm a father. And it's just like, oh man, I don't know what I would do if I was in a situation. It just changed my life because it made me think about my son's future and his kids, you know, where as, as, as humans, where we're going and like what we're doing. Like it, I've noticed some of like my activities and, and habits actually change after watching that movie. Really good movie. Highly recommend it. Very it also cool. makes you a lot more aware of okra. Yes. Okra. <laughs> <laughs> okra and corn. <laughs> yes. You appreciate uh, okra a lot more after watching that movie. <laughs> I, I only cried in Halloween 5. but <laughs> so, I cried in Dumb and Dumber. But <laughs> <laughs> so I did realize that there, I did forget to announce we, are, we do have t-shirts out there. So go to the website, click awesome on the link t-shirts. for t-shirts. You can get t-shirts or hoodies or both for the show. We're actually doing this for all the shows, so if you listen to any of the other shows, then go over there and click on those links too, and you can get t-shirts and stuff. When this comes out, I will be at RailsConf. So if you're at RailsConf and you want a sticker for the show, come find me and I'll give you a sticker. Or if you're in Utah and you want to go grab lunch or something, same deal. Sweet. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Scott. No problem. Anytime. All right, we'll catch everybody next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 